Hi everyone, welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Sunday, December 4th. Amanda Borchel-Dan here, joined by our settlements reporter Jeremy Sharon and news editor Amy Spiro. Hello to you both. Good morning, Amanda. Good morning, everyone. Thursday night, we finally heard the details of the newly agreed terms of the coalition agreement between the Likud and the far-right religious Zionism parties. Jeremy will fill us in on what the actual details are, and we'll hear about My Unorthodox Life from Amy, which just started its second season. But first, a short break. A scrappy army fighting three enemies, an unlikely victory, and a country forever changed. Join host Dr. Noam Weissman for a special Unpacking Israeli History mini-series, where he shares the story of the Six-Day War as you've never heard it before. Travel back to 1967 as Noam recounts the tense lead-up to war, the fierce battles fought, and the aftermath that continues to affect Israel to this day. But what led to this war? How did Israel emerge victorious? And how have the outcomes impacted Israel's position in the region and the world between then and now? Unpack the six days that changed Israel forever in this three-part special of Unpacking Israeli History. Listen to these episodes and more wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. And we're back. Before we dive in with Jeremy, earlier this morning, I had a short briefing from our diplomatic correspondent, Lisa Behrman, who is about to step on a plane. President Isaac Herzog departed this morning for Bahrain for a two-day visit to Bahrain and other allies in the Persian Gulf region. So, Laser. Tell us, what do you expect to be accomplished on this trip? The trip is the first by an Israeli president to the island kingdom, right? That's right, Amanda. President Herzog took off this morning from Ben-Gurion Airport for the first visit by an Israeli president to the island kingdom since the Abraham Accords were signed in September 2020. He is the guest of King, King Hamid bin Isa al-Khalifa, and he will meet him for lunch on Sunday. And in the afternoon, he'll be meeting with members of the Jewish community and um, business leaders in Bahrain. President Herzog is bringing Israeli businessmen, members of the Innovation Authority, the Trade Authority, um, on this trip. And that is certainly one of the major uh, focuses of the trip, the trade relationship and the growing economic relationship. Monday morning, the president and myself as well, we fly to um, Abu Dhabi. He's going to meet with MBC, the president of, um, of the UAE, and um, later in the day he's going to fly home. Now, it should be noted that in Bahrain there have been scattered protests by opposition groups, uh, Iran-affiliated opposition groups against the visit. And I think it's notable not that there were so many people there, there were a few dozens of people, dozens of people but the fact that these uh, protests were allowed to take place at all. Of course, this is not a place with freedom of expression, so it does mean something that they were able to take place, and the Shin Bet has increased security around the visit. At the same time, Bahrain's largest newspaper called Al Ayam published an article by President Herzog, and the English of that article um, came out in the Times of Israel as well. So that is also something that is significant, and that's something that the president noted in his statement before getting on the plane. 
Okay, Jeremy, turning to you, there have been a lot of people speculating over the past several weeks what exactly will be in the terms for the three parties that made up the religious Zionism bloc in the November 1st elections. Now that the coalition agreements have been signed, in a real broad strokes kind of way, what do we know about what each of the three parties got? Okay, so uh, the Religious Zionism Party, which is headed by Batsala Smotrich, is going to get the uh, the most senior role. And so Smotrich himself will get the finance ministry in rotation for two years. That's obviously a very influential ministerial position with, head over, with control over Israel's budgets. And his party will also receive, one of, one of his party's members will become the immigration and absorption minister. Another member will become head of the new national missions ministry. Uh, it's unclear exactly what that ministry is going to do, but uh, anyway, they're going to head it up. And uh, also very importantly, uh, a member of uh, the Religious Zionism Party is going to become head of the very important Knesset Constitution, Law and Justice Committee. And that's going to be crucial for um, driving through the, the judicial and legal reforms, uh, which root which religious Zionism wants to enact. And the other very important aspect of religious Zionism's deal is that they're going to get control of the civil administration, which is an agency within the defense ministry, which has um, a very important role in, in the West Bank. Uh, specifically, it controls authorization over new settlements uh, and, and settlement construction, and also is, is responsible for enforcing illegal construction, whether it's illegal uh, settler construction, Israeli settler construction, or, or legal Palestinian construction. So regarding this control over the civil administration, what it means is that Batal Smotrich and his, and his religious Zionism party, which are, it's a far right party, it's a very religious party, and it is adamantly against a two state solution and adamantly in favor of expanding um, Israeli settlements throughout the West Bank. It means that they're going to be in a position to do just that, to uh, authorize about 70 settlements which are currently uh, not authorized, not legal, and therefore uh, have problems expanding. About 70 of those settlements with 25,000 residents are going to get legalized. And on top of that, it's going to make it much easier for religious Zionism to authorize expanded construction in the settlements, authorize new settlements, and also will likely lead to um, a big reduction in the evacuation and destruction of illegal settlements, illegal settlement outposts. So I think, you know, with religious Zionism's control of this agency, we're going to see a great deal of uh, settlement expansion. At least that's what his party is going to hope for. Great. So we will come back and drill down a little more into this particular aspect of the deal. But tell us, what did Otsma Yehudit also accomplish? Otsmai who did is the, if you want even further right, an ultra-nationalist, a Kahanist party. And they, uh, their leader, Itamar Ben-Gvir, he'll become uh, the national security minister. That's an expanded version of the public security minister, minister which controls the police. They're also going to get, under uh, Ben-Gvir, his new ministry will get control over the border police, which is essentially a, a riot police force, which deals with riots in different parts of the country, including the West Bank and Palestinian rights. So that's an important aspect there because he also wants to be far more harsh in the way rights, uh, Palestinian rights are, are dealt with. Um, he wants to make uh, the open fire rules more lenient, even though the current police uh, minister says that, that you know that's not necessary. And the, the, the border police are also involved in the evacuation of 
illegal settlement outposts. And again, what Tsmayu did is an ultranationalist party against a two-state solution in favor of settlement expansion. Expansion. So again, that's that's feeding into religious Zionism's uh, control of the civil administration. So together, again, we're unlikely to see enforcement against um, illegal settlement uh, construction. Okay, and finally, there's a third party that made up the constellation in the November 1st elections. We've spoken about this uh, last week on the podcast, but just briefly, what did Avi Maoz, who is the one-man member of the Noam party in the Knesset, what did he actually get from Netanyahu? Right, so like you said, he he has he represents a party with one MK in the in the Knesset, and and not more than he you know commands not more than ten to twenty thousand votes. Uh, and he has received, he's become a deputy minister in the prime minister's office. He'll head a new national Jewish identity agency with a budget of about 100 million shekels. And that body, very controversially, is going to be granted authority over content um, in Israeli schools, which is uh, extracurricular. Um, so e- external teaching um, uh, uh, courses um, and partnerships uh, that his, his, his agency is going to have authority over that. And uh, that's very controversial because uh, he, he is uh, his party, perhaps it's raison d'etre, is, is, is to be. Uh, it's very anti-LGBT, anti what they describe as uh, postmodernism. Essentially, it's a very anti-liberal party. It's expressly anti-liberal, and uh, educational um, uh, departments in in municipalities around the country have, have spoken out and said they're very worried about this, and they won't even cooperate with him if he tries to remove liberal um, extracurricular activities and courses. Uh, tries to impose his vision of, of what a you know um, traditional family is meant to be and 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 uh, and any content which might be perceived as uh, as hostile to the LGBT community. Okay, thanks Jeremy. We'll go to a short break and then we'll drill down even further. And we're back. Now, let's focus on the head of the religious Zionism party, MK Betzalus Smotrich a bit. He's often called a zealot or an ideologue. You've talked about a little bit how this may play out in terms of him heading up the civil administration or Kogat. What do you hear from other people so far, other people outside the party, the settler leaders, for example? Well, most of the settlement leadership is is excited about this deal. The the settlement umbrella organization Yesha said that it, it thinks it's gonna this deal is gonna help fortify and strengthen the settlements, which uh, is what it sounds like. It means they think uh, settlements are gonna be able to expand. One of I, I, the biggest complaint settler leaders have whenever I've spoken to them is the fact that it's hard to obtain construction permits in the settlements to expand the settlements that um you know they think their 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 town and their municipality is is kind of strangled by this bureaucracy which makes it very hard to increase the amount of housing in those settlements and so so it's a practical it's a practical problem for them it's an, also an ideological problem because the uh, you know the the religious components of the settlement movement are very ideological about expanding the settlements because they believe like like Vital Smotrich as the head of the religious Zionism party that the Jewish people uh, are have a right to to control the entire land of Israel not just the state of Israel but the land of Israel as determined biblically including uh, the West Bank or Judea and Samaria as they refer to it and so the, you know this expansion of this, what they see as a the coming expansion of settlements fits in to that ideology. Um, there's one organization which I noticed, also a very radical organization, which said that it actually wants to see specific 
terms in the coalition agreement, which we haven't seen yet with religious Zionism, that um, uh, legalizes two new um, two two new outposts. Uh, so they were slightly more skeptical because we haven't seen the final terms. But in general, the the settler leadership seems uh, seems happy with this deal. At the same time, we're hearing comments from, uh, for example, Yair Golan, who is a former NK from Meretz, but also was the deputy chief of staff in the army. He is saying things like, this is institutionalized anarchy. What we're witnessing is the dismantling of government institutions. Do you see that as an accurate statement? Yair Golan is prone to uh, perhaps we could say hyperbole. I, I think in this situation he's he's con- he's concerned that radical ideologues are taking control of key um, government agencies, uh, uh, and and the civil administration is such uh, a key agency, um, and it also has to a certain extent control um, uh, over over aspects of, of Palestinians' lives, and and so that's also a concern. Um, I, I I don't think we've got to the level of anarchy yet. I, I do think we've got to the you know when all of this is actualized. I think we will be at this a, a situation where, like I said, senior politicians with uh, with hardline I- ideologies are going to be running ministries to advance their agenda, um, and and that might see a departure from from what we've known as the status quo in terms of um, Israel's activity in the West Bank and also its relationship with the Palestinians and the Palestinian Authority. Jeremy, thank you for all of that perspective. Amy, turning to you, now for something completely different, right? Very different. I mean, obviously. (laughs) You uh, recently watched, for me, essentially, season two of My (laughs) Unorthodox Life. So I didn't see season one, but I know all about it from you. Tell our listeners what the premise of this reality TV series is. Well, you know, Amanda, I'll do anything for you, even if it's watching reality TV. Appreciate um, it. <laughs> yeah, so season two of the show, uh, the whole thing dropped on Friday on Netflix, um, about a year after the first season. Um, and so the first season followed essentially Julia Hart, um, not the name she was born with, the name she chose. Basically a woman who grew up Orthodox, got married young, lived um, a good chunk of her married life in Muncie, New York, which is a fairly religious Jewish uh, sort of upstate uh, town. Um, And around age 40-ish, she basically decided, I don't want to be religious anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. And she left. Um, And the show sort of follows her reinvention, I would say. Um, She married this um, Italian man, Silvio, who's a billionaire, and she... Uh, work was installed as the CEO of his company, um, and her four kids, you know, were sort of straddling this line of religion, not religion. Everyone was sort of somewhere along the spectrum. And the second season picks up, uh, actually begin filming in January. So it's already been a chunk of time, but, uh, I will say a lot of things have changed since the first season. And so essentially, having read your story, obviously, one of the major things is that she's going through a major divorce, and so is her daughter. So what's happening there? Yes. So season two essentially opens with matching mother-daughter divorces, um, and that sort of sets the theme for uh, the rest of the season. So her daughter, Batsheva, got married when she was 19. Um, and she's now 28. They're married for nine years. And they they came to a mutual agreement that they just didn't want the same things moving forward and that her husband, Ben, wanted to stay religious and stay in the Orthodox community and that she did not. And they went their separate ways. And that's the uh, sort of the foil to the other divorce, which is, 
you know, long before this this season aired, uh, it, you know, if you pay attention to the tabloids and to page six in the New York Post and all that sort of stuff, like this was all, you know, constantly covered. But essentially, Julia and Sylvia are getting divorced after just a couple of years. Um, and it is messy, to say the least, because she I mean, we're still talking about uh, now, like all this stuff is still ongoing in court. Nothing has been decided. I don't think they're officially divorced. And more importantly, the official control over the company that they purportedly co-owned, but perhaps did not fully co-own, is still in play. And there's fraud lawsuits and there's defamation lawsuits and there's dozens of lawsuits and there's all sorts of court uh, proceedings going on. And it is messy and it is... uh, a little cringe-inducing at times to watch. Uh, it's, a, it's a very specific genre that has a lot of fans. There certainly be people who will be hate-watching it. Um, but, you know, I think even the people who will say in public, oh, I would never watch that, I think a lot of them are watching it behind closed doors. So one of the more interesting aspects for our listenership, perhaps, is the case of the youngest son who did not follow his mother's path. Tell us very briefly, without too many spoilers, about what's going on here. Yes, the youngest son is our own, and he's really the only minor among her children. He's the only, you know, when the first season started, I think he was 14. And so this season, he's 15. He turned 16 over the summer. Um, So he is, he has... Essentially, she has split custody over our own with her ex-husband, um, and her ex-husband is still religious, is still observant. And there was even in this first season, sort of a battle over not between not between uh, Julia and her ex-husband Yosef. They actually seem to get along very well and agree on a lot of things. But our own himself wanted to go to a more observant school, and she wanted him to go to a modern Orthodox school that has secular and, you know, Judaic education. Um, and he agreed. But this season, he seems to, you know, while all of his older siblings seem to be moving away from religion, he seems to be moving more towards uh, religion. And that's sort of one of the themes of this of this season um, is that he is increasingly religious. You know, he wears a black hat. Um, he's not happy with his school that's gender integrated, that has a strong focus on secular studies. He wants to go to the kind of yeshiva where they essentially learn Talmud most of the day. And she is very opposed to that. And I think that's, um, you know, first of all, that's a battle that happens uh, off of off of reality TV screens as well. And I think it's, yeah, one of the more interesting aspects that has nothing to do with the divorce and the court and all of that messy stuff. Amy, Jeremy, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Amanda. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein, and to Gili Amar for this out-of-this-world music. You can find us daily wherever you find your podcasts. And on our mothership, timesofisrael.com. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. And be sure to check out our weekly feature, Times Will Tell, released every Friday. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.